What Makes a Killer contains graphic details of sexual assault and violence and is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Yosemite National Park, located in the picturesque Sierra Nevada mountains, was all but serene for five months in 1999. Fear ran rampant as four women were viciously murdered. Yosemite is one of those places, it's the crown jewel of national parks in the United States. And the idea that these women were possibly murdered after visiting a national park, specifically Yosemite, really unnerved people. The prime suspect was 37-year-old Carrie Stainer, a handyman at a local lodge. After being arrested in July of that same year, he astonished everyone with what he did next. While he's being held, somehow he's able to get a 25-minute interview with a local news crew. And while they're on a break from questioning him, he confesses to the news crew before he even confesses to the FBI. He told his version of events to local TV news reporter Ted Rowlands. And the first thing he said to me was, I want you to contact Hollywood producers, and I would like a movie of the week made about my story. He immediately went from asking for this movie of the week to a full confession. Stainer, who allegedly raped two of the women, adamantly denied the occurrence of sexual assault. Harry Stainer has got quite a a strong narcissistic strand to his personality. He didn't want to be seen as the sexual predator that he actually was. He wants to be this tough, dangerous predator, this this hunter. And and that's inconsistent with, with the label of a rapist or a sex offender. The roots of narcissism are very often in shame. And I think that's very much what shaped Kerry Stainer's life, that he feels ashamed of who he is, he feels ashamed of what he's experienced. This is What Makes a Killer, a series that chronicles the lives and crimes of the world's most notorious killers. I'm your host, Jennifer Natoso. In every episode, we'll trace a killer's origins, examine their behavior, and follow their path to bloodshed. In this episode, we'll discuss Kerry Stainer, the Yosemite Park Killer. Carrie Stainer was born August 13, 1961, in Merced, California. Author Jeffrey Wansell and Dr. Elizabeth Yardley describe Stainer's home life. His father, Delbert, was a Korean War veteran, a stiff staff sergeant who married his mother. Together they had five children, three girls and two boys, close family. But there's not much doubt in my mind it was also an abusive family, it was dysfunctional. This family do have quite a dark history when you look behind the closed doors. So there's a multi-generational history of abuse going on. There were early warning signs that Carrie was having problems coping as an infant. When he's three years old, he starts engaging in a behavior called trichotillomania. And this basically refers to hair pulling. This is really concerning stuff because you have a three-year-old child who is essentially engaging in an act of self-harm. 
This suggests to me that this was a young lad who really was trying to, to take back some power, take back some control over something that, that he felt he didn't have control over. And it, this was the, the way that it was manifested. Reporter Ted Rollins recalls Stainer sharing his earliest childhood memories. When he was in his family car in the supermarket parking lot, fantasizing about killing and tying up the female checkers, thinking that he was that young and having these urges, if right, really is um, a window into his world. But when he's seven, he starts to have these fantasies of, of capturing and killing women. And for me, that suggests that he's got this idea from somewhere. He's equated violence and sexual violence with power somehow. Growing up, Carrie and his brother Stephen, seven years younger, shared a room. Carrie's younger brother Stephen was absolutely the apple of his father's eye. He was the single one, if you like, in the family of five children that the father identified with. Then, when Carrie was 11 years old, tragedy struck the already troubled Stainer family. The decisive moment in Carrie's young life came in December 1972. And his younger brother Stephen, then aged seven, was abducted by a paedophile and kept for seven years. This is, is something that has a, a devastating effect on the family. So this family member has gone, and what do you do? To have something like this happen during your childhood is going to have a, a devastating impact on you, especially yourself having experienced sexual abuse. Stainer would later claim that his uncle Jess sexually abused him as a child. For children who experience these types of things, they feel like nowhere is safe for them, nowhere is secure for them, because you, your family is supposed to be your sanctuary. The impact that abduction had, not just on the Stainer family as a whole, but also on Carey, was catastrophic. Carey's father, Delbert, was distraught, absolutely distraught. Would cry, would blame Carey for not looking after his brother, would say, Oh, he's the one son I really love. Those vital years between 11 and 18 were lived in the shadow of the disappeared Stephen. A kind of almost unimaginable torture, torment. Carrie was now given the responsibility of looking after his sisters. I think he was perhaps to a degree blamed for, for the fact that, that Stephen had gone missing and his parents would say to him, make sure that you watch your sisters. So he's charged with the monitoring and the surveillance of women, of girls at quite a, a young age and he's having quite a heavy adult responsibility placed on him. March 2nd, 1980, Carrie's kidnapped brother Stephen suddenly returned home. As if by magic, Stephen escapes from his captor, along with another little boy, and reappears. If there could be said to be one single moment or trigger for what became his killing spree, it was almost certainly the return of his brother. Anxiously there to greet him, his parents, three sisters, and 18-year-old brother Carrie. Stephen Stainer had escaped with a much younger boy, five-year-old Timmy White. Stephen 
Stainer's story made international news. It was a little boy that escaped captivity from a pedophile and basically single-handedly was responsible for saving himself, saving another child, and putting a pedophile behind bars. So Carrie Stainer's brother, Stephen, was a hero. After seven years, Parnell thinks that Stephen's really getting a bit too old for him. He is a pedophile. And so he tells the boy's got a replacement, a, a little boy called Timmy White, who was five years old. Stephen realizes that this cannot be right. Former FBI Special Agent Bobby Chacon talks about Stephen's heroic feat. He rescued that child and got out of there and went to the police. And he said, I know my first name is Stephen. And that later became a book and a movie. And the U.S. was captivated by the story of this young man who, you know, overcame all this terrible abuse and then put his life on the line to save this five-year-old child. The story was eventually adapted into a two-part television miniseries called I Know My First Name is Stephen. Carrie Stainer was home during all of this, watching his brother get all these accolades and had all of the attention of his despondent parents who had been so sad for seven years with a missing child. They were now elated to have their little boy back. And I think it affected Carrie a lot. Carrie later said that. He said, I felt like my parents, there was clearly a number one son in the house, and that was uh, Stephen. And, and so I was pushed aside, and I was left, you know, to fend for myself. Stephen's appearance on Good Morning America with his parents further added to Carrie's simmering rage. Delbert is seen hugging his son, something that he signally failed ever to do to his elder brother, Carrie. Never showed much affection, but all of a sudden, Delbert is reunited with the, in a way, the golden youth. There is no doubt in my mind that this made Carrie Stainer incredibly angry. He's not known for being Carrie. He's known for being the brother of the boy who went missing. That's not going to have a good impact on you. That is going to really devastate your own sense of your identity. Here's a man who is spiraling out of control. He's, he's going towards something, but we don't quite know what that is yet. Stephen's return only heightens the feeling that his elder brother has of being somehow a shadow in the Delbert family life. Then on September 17th, 1989, nine years after being reunited with their son Stephen, the Stainer family was once again inundated by tragedy when Stephen returned, that the tragedies for this family were far from over. So Stephen got married and he had children, but he was killed in, in a hit-and-run accident only as a young man, so, so his life was quite brutally ended. Stephen's untimely death sparked a descent for Carrie into the dark side of his personality. Ironically, when Stephen was killed in the car accident, Carrie was sharing a house with his uncle Jess and working for a local mirror-making company. Stephen's death was the trigger for Carrie Stainer to escalate to violence. The following year, Carrie's uncle Jess was found dead in the house they shared. Carrie Stainer later claimed as part of his defense that his uncle sexually abused him as a child it led some to suggest that Stainer may have had something to do with his murder. But at the time, no one was charged. 
When you look back at the circumstances surrounding Uncle Jesse's death, it, it was believed that he was killed by a drifter who was around the property, but, but that individual was, was never actually identified and convicted of that particular murder. Carrie Stainer was questioned about it and was a suspect, but was not tried for it. And Carrie Stainer told me that he did not commit that murder. By 1991, Carrie Stainer was working at the Merced Glass and Mirror Company. On the surface, all seemed fine, but that would be short-lived. He is liked by his workmates. He's regarded as approachable, as kindly. You could trust him with anyone. You know, leave your children with him. He's absolutely, couldn't be a nicer man. And yet underneath that, beneath the surface, Stainer is uh, profoundly challenged, unbalanced, a man at war with himself, at war with his own desires, at war with his own fury at what's happened to him, at the way he's grown up. One of his co-workers come across him one day, basically pounding his fist into to a plank of wood and saying that he feels really anxious, he, he feels really, really nervy and, and scared, and that he feels like going and killing all of his co-workers. He's seen by a psychiatrist, but he doesn't receive any ongoing treatment. It's, it's considered, OK, this looks like it was a one-off. He became more and more isolated. His parents then moved away from Merced, where he'd been brought, born and brought up. Then he was left on his own. He, Uncle Jess was dead. His brother was dead. He'd left the job he'd had for quite some time. He decided that he was going to go off the radar. He was going to go and live in the woods. This, this guy was going off the grid. In 1997, Carrie Stainer was hired as the resident handyman at the Cedar Lodge Motel in Yosemite National Park in California. At the same time, gets a room above the diner in the hotel upstairs. Now, it's, it's quite a big motel, 50-plus rooms, plenty of coming and going, rather beautiful. It's on the edge of the Yosemite National Park. Everybody loved this guy, all his co-workers, his supervisors. Everybody said this was the nicest guy. But unbeknownst to those around him, the affable handyman was at war with himself. His only respite was hiking in the woods, and he developed an appetite for nude sunbathing. I suspect that he was having difficulty controlling his own sexual desires, and that perhaps nudity and nudism shared with others was a way of coping with that. He was desperately trying to keep himself under control, and there's no doubt in my mind of that. Valentine's Day, 1999. It was Yosemite's off-season with only a few visiting tourists. Would-be serial killer and handyman Carrie Stainer was working at the Cedar Lodge Motel, and all seemed fine. Quite by chance, he sees a mother, a daughter, and a daughter's friend pull in to the parking lot of the lodge in a red Pontiac Grand Prix. They've rented it. Her name was Carol Sund. Her daughter was called Julie, and her daughter's friend from Argentina was visiting an exchange student called Silvana. Stainer told me that he knew that they were the only 
occupants in the entire building and that he noticed them earlier in the day and that one of his fantasies that he had been thinking about was to capture and torture two young girls. He knocked on the door and said, I'm the maintenance man and we have a problem in the bathroom. Could you let me in to fix it? It's 11 o'clock at night at this point. Carol is cautious. She says, hang on a minute, doesn't open the door. And she goes back. Stainer's on the other side of the door. No, there's no leak, I can't see anything. No, no, ma'am, I've got to come in. I've got to, you've got to let me in. I'm, I'm absolutely, I, I, I'll lose my job. You, know, I, you don't let me in. Stainer's very persuasive. Carol Sund makes the fatal mistake of opening the door. As soon as he got into the room, he pulled out his gun. He took Sylvina and Julie, the teenagers, and put them in the bathroom, locked the door, and then came out and strangled Carol's son in the hotel room. Stainer had killed her. He took her body and dumped it in the trunk of the family's rented car. He returned to the room. Brought both girls out and began to sexually assault them, we later found out. He then killed Sylvina Peloso after she started screaming and was not cooperating with him. He took Sylvina's body then and put it into the trunk along with Carol's, came back and spent a few hours sexually abusing and torturing Julie's son inside the hotel room. And now the fantasy really comes to life. Stainer has convinced himself that he has some kind of relationship with the 15-year-old Julie Sund. She is somehow an object of his affections. She is to be cherished in the mad fantasy world that he's created for himself. Then he said he decided to take Julie out in the early morning hours before the sun came up, put her in the car, and drove with the bodies in the trunk. Behind the wheel of the rental car, Stainer headed east out of the park. They ended up taking Julie to a reservoir called Lake Don Pedro, which is about 90 miles from Yosemite. It's very remote. They drive in the Pontiac Grand Prix to a local beauty spot with a view. The sun comes up and he picks Julie Sund up out of the passenger seat of the Pontiac as if she were his bride. He and he were the bridegroom. He carries her to this vantage point and sits her down. Around sunrise, Stainer slit the girl's throat. He then called a cab to take him 90 miles back to the lodge. Upon his return to the Cedar Lodge Motel, he acted as if nothing had happened. Back to the motel, back to work. Stainer, careful, careful man, has cleaned the room. I mean, he is the motel's handyman after all. He's made sure not to leave any traces. The Pontiac Grand Prix's gone, the room's clean. Two days went by and still... No one suspected a thing. No one raises any alarm. Carol's husband tries to track her down, but thinks she's just making her way they were going to meet at San Francisco airport. Concerned that he had not covered his tracks sufficiently, Stainer returned to the car. A few days later, he drove back there, found the car, and brought with him gasoline. He took evidence out of the car and then torched it. From there, 
he decided to throw the FBI off by taking Carol's son's wallet and drive it to Modesto, which was in the other direction. Four days after their disappearance, the women were finally reported as missing. The authorities suspected foul play when the wallet was found eight miles away in Modesto, California. The wallet was found by somebody who was just walking down the street, picks it up, and takes it to the police. As soon as they found that wallet, the case changed immediately from a missing persons case to a criminal case. The investigators focused their attention on finding the car that the women had rented for their trip. It was a red Pontiac. So this gave investigators something to search for. And because this took place at a national park, it had immense attention, not only from the media, but from the American public. The entire staff at the Cedar Lodge was questioned within days of the murders, including the genial handyman, Carrie Stainer. The FBI said that he seemed stoic and calm as can be. But to him, he said his heart was racing, he was nervous, and he was convinced that the FBI was going to be coming back to arrest him at any moment. A month went by, and the women's bodies had still not been found. The women had vanished, and the case was getting cold. Then the next break happened. The car was located by a local man who was out hunting in the woods. Inside the trunk of the car were two bodies, Carol Sund and Sylvina Peloso. And the car was burnt to the point where their bodies were unrecognizable. In fact, they had to use DNA testing to positively identify them. Dr. Stuart Hamilton discusses the two main problems with the recovered bodies. We have the fact that the bodies are starting to decompose, and then we've got the effects of fire. That sort of fire is really quite ineffective at destroying a body. So it is a challenge to the forensic investigators, but by no means one that can't be overcome. But Stainer was far from being considered the prime suspect. By this time, Stainer is, you know, how could he possibly be an object of interest? I mean, I may work at the hotel, but all sorts of people work at the hotel. And in fact, the local police drag in all sorts of potential villains, you know, drug dealers, of all local armed robbers. They've got about seven or eight possible suspects. And at one point, they even say, I'm sure we've got the, you know, the perpetrator in custody. He comes onto the radar of the, the investigation, and he's actually quite helpful with the investigators. He shows them around the lodge. Um, he, he answers their questions. And I think at this point in proceedings, he does, I think, enjoy that feeling of being close to the investigation, of knowing how much or how little the police know themselves. And I think this is, is something that he feels that he's going to get away with. But the body of 15-year-old Juliana Sund was still missing. And in yet another unexpected turn, Carrie Stainer wrote a letter to the FBI. Stainer had become so confident and indeed, in a way, so arrogant that he decides to write to the FBI to tell them where they can find Julie's body and draws them a little map and tells them we had a lot of fun together. The 15-year-old girl's decomposed body was found hidden in the underbrush by Merced River in Modesto County. When the facts came out about the condition of Julie's body, the fact that she had been murdered, cut, her neck almost cut off, um, that put this case into a whole nother realm when the details of Julie's murder and the brutality of that murder was released. 
that sent another shockwave through the region because people now knew that these women were not only murdered, but brutally murdered and possibly tortured. But serial killer Carrie Stainer was not done yet and would soon strike again. And this time, Stainer would do it with even more terrifying ferocity. By the end of June 1999, police had discovered the mutilated bodies of three women viciously murdered in Yosemite National Park, California. They were found dumped in the woods about 80 miles from where they had been staying at the Cedar Lodge Motel. Carrie Stainer, the handyman at the same motel, wasn't even a suspect. The FBI was convinced that they had the killers in custody. They believed that they had solved the case and they were just working on getting more evidence because they truly believed that these methamphetamine users and dealers were responsible, even though the real killer was sitting at the hotel where those girls were the whole time. Three months pass. No one comes knocking on Carrie Stainer's door to arrest him. Stainer has remained undetected, uncharged, still the affable handyman at the Cedar Lodge Motel. But the clock was ticking for Stainer, and he would kill again. The balm that I think he felt from the killings of Carol and daughters, daughter's friend, was wearing off. And I think he felt that he needed another victim. On July 21st, 1999, Stainer found his next target. 26-year-old Joey Ruth Armstrong, a park worker. She was one of these girls that just loved being out in nature, and you could see it in her face, a big smile. Her mother talked about how happy she was to have this position and how happy she was to be living in one of the most beautiful places in the world. Joey was loading her car outside the cabin in the forest where she and fellow park workers stayed. The location was about a 30-minute drive from the lodge where Stainer was based. She was by herself getting ready to go meet some mates for a hike up in Northern California. So she was packing her car in Yosemite Valley, getting ready to leave. When Carrie Stainer noticed her, he approached Joey with his gun, forced her inside her house, and put duct tape around her mouth and her hands and got her into his car and was taking off to kidnap her. But she was able to jump out of the car and run for her life. She was unable to outrun Stainer, so he was able to park his car, run around, and tackle her and grab her. He absolutely loses his temper, and he attacks her so violently that he effectively decapitates her. He cuts her throat, but so violently that he effectively separates her head from her body. He told the FBI that there was so much blood on her head that when he looked at it, he couldn't even see her face. We have an escalation of what he's doing. He's abducted her, he's bound her, he's gagged her, beheads her. At least we can say it would be a very rapid death at the end and a very brave young woman to try and escape from such horrible circumstances. This time, however, Stainer had sealed his own fate. 
ultimately that's the murder that leads back to the other three. Had he not committed that, that fourth murder, I don't know that he would have been caught. The following day, a park ranger found Joey's body. It was clear that the current suspects were, in fact, innocent. When Joey Armstrong turned up dead, it didn't take long for the FBI to tell the public that indeed they were wrong and the real killer was still out there. This now reignited the entire case and it took it to another level. The idea that a young woman was decapitated inside the park was unnerving to everyone and now it was all hands on deck because there was a murderer on the loose. A blue and white 1979 International Scout was seen parked near the scene of the crime. Later that afternoon, two park rangers looking for the car found 37-year-old Carrie Stainer. One of the things that he liked to do in the park was go find a spot along the river and sunbathe naked. So after killing Joey Armstrong, he went to one of these spots and was out sunbathing naked. When two park rangers came across him, talked to him, confiscated his backpack, and let him go. Stainer was interviewed again at the Cedar Lodge. Again, he was allowed to be free. They took samples and photographs of his tires to match tire tracks at the scene, but they allowed Stainer to stay free for another day. With the walls closing in, Stainer fled. After matching the tire tracks, the FBI went back to arrest Kerry Stainer at the Cedar Lodge. When they got there, he was gone. So they put out an all-points bulletin. The FBI found Stainer on July 24, 1999, 48 hours after his fourth murder. Somebody had seen the news reports that they were looking for Kerry Stainer, and there was a photo of him, and lo and behold, he was at a nudist camp up in the Sacramento area. So he had driven from Yosemite to this nudist camp and was just sitting at the restaurant at the nudist camp when the FBI came to interview him a third time with the intent of taking him into custody. By this point, I'm absolutely certain in my own mind that Stainer knew he was going to be caught and was in fact quite happy to be caught. I think in a way he had acknowledged that he was so badly distorted as a personality, that he wanted to be incarcerated. When Stainer was arrested, reporter Ted Rollins got the call that changed his life and the exclusive confession that was able to help convict a serial killer. I was alerted by my station that an arrest had been made in Joey Armstrong's murder. So I immediately went to Sacramento. I went to the jail to see if I could get an interview with Stainer. So I asked the jailer if they would call up and inquire whether he would be open for me to come up and interview him. And the jailer called up to the cell block and received word that Stainer did not want to talk. I decided that I was going to keep asking, and I ended up spending the day going back and forth from the courthouse to the jail and harassing the jailer, please call up, I'd like to see if he'll talk to me now. Eventually, the reporter's persistence paid off. I remember walking back into the jail thinking to myself I was wasting my time and the jailer looked at me like, oh, you're back. And I said, yeah, one more time. Can you just ask him one more time if he'll talk? And the jailer got off the phone and said, by God, he's going to talk. And immediately, I froze and thought, oh my gosh. 
within two minutes, I was on an elevator going up to the prison tier, and I could see through the glass. I could see Carrie Stainer go out of his cell and start walking towards me and coming right up to the glass. And there I was, three feet away from this serial killer, and we were talking face-to-face -face using a telephone, going back and forth. Stainer coldly admitted to the four murders he had committed in Yosemite National Park. From the moment he walked in, he was rigid and very clinical. The way he spoke, his voice didn't go up or down. There was little or no emotion, even when he talked about the murders. His demeanor was just detached. Carrie Stainer confessed, but despite evidence to the contrary, refused to admit to key elements of the crimes. He admitted to the murders, but he glossed over the details. In fact, he lied. He lied about some of the story to me. He told me that he never physically abused or tortured any of his victims. I think he lied to me because he wanted to take credit for the murders, but he was embarrassed about the torture and the sexual assault, and he didn't want the public to know about that. I think a killer who confesses is sometimes getting some of it off his chest, but who's to say, for example, that Carrie Stainer hadn't killed again? Did he kill other people? It's entirely possible. Stainer was eventually tried and convicted on four counts of murder. He was sentenced to death on December 12, 2002, and is now behind bars in San Quentin State Prison in California, awaiting the death penalty. And I asked him also to give the families a message. What would you say to the son Peloso Armstrong families? And he said that he would like to tell the families that he's sorry that their loved ones were where they were when they were. And that, to me, was really haunting because what he was really saying was, I couldn't help myself. There was nothing I could do about it. It seemed as though he was trying to convince me that he was somehow a hero for resisting for 30 plus years of his life, saying that he had had these urges to torture and kill women since he was a seven-year-old child. It was a way to articulate that this demon inside him was too powerful. What Makes a Killer is an Audio Boom original series in production with Woodcut Media and hosted by me, Jennifer Natoso. This series is produced by Audio Boom's Lauren Vogel, Blair Payton, Pam Burrows, and Karen Bevan, and by Nick Maverdeckis for Woodcut. Original music by Ben Kregi. Executive producers for Woodcut are Kate Beal and Janelle Patel, and for Audio Boom are Brendan Regan and Stuart Last. If you haven't already, don't forget to follow us on Spotify or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite pods. We would love a review if you've got some time. On next week's episode of What Makes a Killer, it's 2010 in Bradford, West Yorkshire. 
one man's sick wish for recognition is about to be realized. It was absolutely astonishing. Very seldom is murder captured on camera. Stephen Griffiths, seen with a crossbow, chases a female companion and shoots her before dragging the girl back inside his apartment, never to be seen alive again. He's dismembered the bodies, he's taken pictures of them. This is somebody who's quite comfortable around death. The concept that he gave himself a nickname, he wanted the celebrity of being a serial killer. 